0: Good morning. Hey, good to see everyone. It's been a really lovely morning. It's, um, if, it's, it's really lovely to see everyone here today. Um, and I also know that we've got people that are joining in online, and so welcome to you as well. If we haven't met before, my name's Dave Clark. I've been a part of this church in town for almost 14 years now, and I always really enjoy the opportunity to be able to come up and talk about God and what He's doing um, in our world. And as Ian just mentioned, we're, we started last week doing a series looking at some of the major prophets in the Old Testament. So last week, um, Gavin took the easy option by doing Isaiah. Now, he's gonna, he's gonna, he told you that it was 66 chapters, and I'm doing Jeremiah this week, which is only 52, but I do want you to know that in the original Hebrew, there are more words in Jeremiah than any book of the Bible, so I've got the heart of gear. all right, let's don't listen to what he tells you. It's rubbish. So, uh, <laughs> love you, Gav. <laughs> but look, we're up, we're, the reason we're looking at these books is because we want to get a bit of an idea or an overview of what's happening so that we can go and read the books ourselves and gain a lot more from them. Because they are beasts of books. They're huge and they can be quite confusing. And we want to kind of open them up so that each person can read them for themselves and find out what God is saying to us. So tonight we are looking at Jeremiah, or today we're looking at Jeremiah. And I tried looking for what Jeremiah, or I searched what Jeremiah looks like. And obviously the technology wasn't around back then. So I let the algorithm show me what it believed the closest thing to Jeremiah these days is. And this is what it gave us. That was Jeremy Hunt. I, uh, I think he got a little bit confused, Jeremy, Jeremiah. Um, and the, Bible's, the Bible is silent as to whether Jeremiah won a footy grand final. Um, I don't know if he played for the Je- uh, Jerusalem Jets or something. But, um, so while we don't know what Jeremiah looks like, we do know a lot about him and what he was doing at the time. So Jeremiah was given the task by God to give some pretty tough messages. And he had to give them for over 30 years, including in in the middle of and beyond the time when the Babylonians came and took over the city he was living in. So it's a really tough gig that Jeremiah was given. And most of the time that he was speaking, the people just did not listen. So we, we read in the book, his own family turns against him, he's whipped, he's attacked by mobs, He's threatened by kings, he's beaten, he's locked up, and he's thrown into wells. On top of that, he endures that siege that goes for a number of years and destroys the city that he lives in. And then he's left behind in the smoldering ruins. And God's like, you need to continue talking to the people here and also write letters to the people beyond while you're continuing to live in misery. Who wants to swap spots with Jeremiah? Jeremiah. Like, no, I'll take Jez. I'll take Jeremy's spot. I'll, <laughs> I'd love to win a grand final, but I do not want Jeremiah's position. Now, the book of Jeremiah, which we're going to look at, we're going to dive into it a bit more as we go along today. But it was actually written by a scribe called Baruch. Now, Baruch wrote it the first time, but he forgot to save a copy on a USB or on Google Drive. And so, in chapter thirty-six, when the, it, we, we read that the king takes all the scrolls he's written and sets them on fire. So Baruch and Jeremiah have to sit down and re-say and rewrite the entire book again. So it's only because of their faithfulness that we now have the ability to read it today. So it's an incredible privilege that we have access to this book of the Bible. Now, as Baruch sets out the bo- the story, this is how it goes. So in chapter one, God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet. Then in chapters two to twenty-four. These are messages of warning that Jeremiah preaches over a 23-year period, calling the people to repent and to turn back to God. In chapter 25, which is pretty much smack bang in the middle of the book, Jeremiah declares that because the people have not been responding to what God said, the, what, what he had been warning about would happen. Like there was no turning back now. Exile was going to happen. And the majority of them would be carried away for 70 years. Then from chapters 26 to 51, Babylon attacks, taking most of the people into exile, but leaving a remnant or a small group of them behind, including Jeremiah. And God asks Jeremiah to keep preaching and speaking to the people who he's with, as well as with the help of Baruch, write letters and send them to the exiles as well. And we get to read both lots of that. And then in chapter 52, I think they realize that it's been a pretty heavy book, and they're like, we need a glimmer of hope. (laughs) And there's this little interaction between the king of Babylon and the king of Israel. And that is this sign that God has not forgotten his people, that the story is ongoing. So a lot happens in this book, and a lot is said. But today we want to go, what is the heart of this whole book? And the book of Jeremiah is about a broken relationship. It's about a broken relationship that won't heal without drastic action. This is the key idea that is going to help us unlock the book. So in chapter 2, right right after Jeremiah has been called, God starts speaking to his people. And God calls his people his bride. He calls them a lot of things in this book, but that's the the main description he gives for his relationship with his people. And in the first couple of verses of this chapter, it says that the relationship has started really well. There's faithfulness, there's commitment, and then pretty much from that point on in the book, things start to stray. So we, we start to see that the people drift from God, and specifically, they start to worship other idols. Now, Jeremiah does not go easy on these idols. He rips into them throughout the entire book. So a couple of my favorite ones, he says... That these idols are about as lifelike as a scarecrow in a cucumber field. I think that's brilliant. He also says, he says, you think that these things are going to bring you life? He said they're going to bring you about as much life as a dried-up piece of cow dung. I'm like, man, now let's put those on tea towels. Just thinking, then we got that's that's Chris Kringle sorted for the year if we did. But but the people stray away from their relationship from God for hundreds of years. The start of Isaiah last week, that was written before this, and then the two books kind of cross over. But so for hundreds of years before Isaiah, including Isaiah, and now through the time of Jeremiah, the people are turning away from God, despite God continually reaching out to them, giving them opportunity after opportunity. So in Jeremiah 7, verse 28, God says, "'This is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God.' Or responded to correction. Truth has perished, it has vanished from their lips. In the following chapter, God continues to speak, and He says about the people, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. Like them turning away from God has become so normalized, they don't even feel shame anymore. And so, after seeing the relationship with His people so broken and damaged, And having tried every opportunity and every approach to win them back, God decides that he is going to allow something drastic to happen. In chapter 9, verse 7, he says, I will refine and test them. For what else can I do because of the sin of my people? God would allow Babylon to invade and to take the people into exile for 70 years, which is about three generations long. Now, God is, oh Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is a God who describes himself as slow to anger and abounding in love. But what makes the book of Jeremiah tricky is that we see the anger. In fact, there's about 20 chapters where God is furious, and it just pours and pours and pours out. It took centuries for that anger to build up, but now in Jeremiah, it's here. And I think as Christians, we don't always know how to make sense of things when we read about God being that angry. I I know for me, um, and and you might be the similar, I've often flicked past big chunks of the Old Testament because I'm like, yeah, let's get to the good stuff. I don't quite know what to do with a God who expresses and feels that much anger towards people he says he loves. And it's, it's, it's difficult because this, this God of the Old Testament, this God who's showing so much anger, is the same God of the New Testament and is the same God we follow now. But how on earth do all three kind of fit in? How are they the same God? And I think part of why we struggle at times reading about God's anger and knowing what to do with it is that we struggle with anger in general. It, it's a tricky thing when it's in our lives and when it's in the lives of people around us. I know several of us were probably taught growing up that anger is a bad thing. We are probably taught, do not feel it, definitely don't express it, because if you do, anger is bad. And we've probably seen it in our own actions, as well as in the actions of others, that anger is often expressed and used in in really unsafe and hurtful ways. So when damage is done to something or to someone, anger is usually one of the main ingredients. It's a a big part of what is happening. And so I think it's very easy for us to start to see anger as only something that is wrong, sinful, and dangerous. Anger in and of itself, though, is a very normal and God-given emotion. What we do with that emotion usually dictates whether it becomes a harmful or a healthy thing. But emotions themselves, they're they're simple pieces of information. They're given by God to show us what is important to us, to show us what's actually going on around us. So a lot of the time it shows us things that we like or that we don't like. It shows us what's safe and unsafe. It also shows us what has been hurt and what's been broken. So we often feel anger when something important to us has been impacted. We get that emotional and that physical sensation which really, at times, can run the show. The reason it's happening, though, is because of something deeper underneath. So to kind of get an idea of what is happening when anger of our own, and then also to kind of give us an insight into what happens with God, people have often used this picture around anger to describe or to help us understand it. So our anger is the bit of the iceberg that we see and feel straight away. Like, it rises above the surface. It sticks out like a bad haircut. It's there. There's no hiding it. But we're angry. We feel that response because something deeper has been impacted. And While the words are quite small underneath the surface, if you can read them, you might see some and go, yeah, that's often what drives my response when I'm feeling angry. I know for me, I had a moment of anger this week. I was at the bakery And the person in front of me bought the last lemon meringue donut. Oh, tragedy. Obviously, not a heartbreaking moment, but still, you can just feel it. It's like, oh, come on. I was salivating for that. But I know probably those other moments where the anger is a lot stronger. Often, it's things where I feel humiliated or I feel powerless. I feel rejected. I feel sad. That's often is what's lying underneath my anger. Something is always underneath it. We see the surface, but what is the driver kind of pushing that along? And so I think when we read a book like Jeremiah and we come across massive chunks of anger, it really helps to ask what was going on for God. Like what is this showing us about Him, about what's important for Him? What's been hurt? or what's been violated in terms of God. We've already dropped a few little verses here, and again, obviously, 52 chapters. Please read and jump in. But the verses that we've seen already, God has this relationship with Israel, and he wants it to be this healthy, beautiful, vibrant relationship, and yet the people have just gone and cheated on him. Like, they've ditched him. They've swapped the good living God out for pieces of plywood. Like they're trying to find life from something that can't bring it. God is there going, I'm here. And they're like, we don't want you. They've essentially ditched their God. And God's watching this and he's involved in this. He's seen their decision to ditch him. And it doesn't just impact them. Because then when we ditch the God or the source of love and peace... And reconciliation and kindness, where we go with that is usually ripples and ripples of hurts and destruction and decay onto the people around us. So God's heart is breaking. He has seen a group of people who are not able to follow him and experience the best of life, and then they are continuing to then go and hurt the people around them. So there is just more and more hurt and pain for hundreds of years. On top of that, because that's not quite enough, God's holiness, his goodness, his reputation has just been trashed. So the people who are meant to represent him and they're like, hey, if you want to know what God's like, look at us. For hundreds of years have just been trashing this reputation. The people around are getting the wrong idea of who who this God is. So for hundreds of years, God has been cheated on and ditched and hurt and pushed aside and his reputation is gone and his holiness is spat on. Can we see why God might be angry. Our God is slow to anger, yet over hundreds of years of heartbreak, things reach a tipping point in the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 30, verse 24, it says, the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you'll understand this. So this isn't a God who says, well, you hurt me, so I hurt you. It's not how God works. Exile is a wake-up call for the people. He's hoping that there will still be restored relationship between him and them. This is the only way. This is the alarm clock setting off, like, wake up, wake up, come on. This is it. And we know that because in the next chapter, God continues to say what his desire is. It's not, I will hurt them. He says, like, no, I will put my law in their minds, and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. Restored relationship is the aim of God's actions. That's the heart of our God. The God of the Old Testament is the exact same God as the new and the same God we follow now. He's always been the God of relationship. Completely dedicated to restoring what has been broken. How he goes about it? Now, that's what we see differently throughout the Bible. And it, the ultimate way is in Jesus in the New Testament, where Jesus goes into his own exile of death to restore the connection between us and the Father. But the God in the book of Jeremiah shows the exact same desire he's always had and always will. He is the God of restoration. He is healing and bringing back together what has been broken. And there's lots of reasons why he does this. The book of Jeremiah gives us a really big one throughout. It says it's for his glory and so that his glory then ripples out, starting with his people and always rippling beyond. A blessing to be a blessing or blessed to be a blessing. It's always to kick on to the community around. And this is where I think Jeremiah speaks into our lives most powerfully today. So in Jeremiah 17, God gives these two pictures, one of a bush and one of a tree. One is where we're doing life apart from God, and one is what He is deeply passionate about and committed to, which is restoring relationship with him. So let's have a read of these verses. So the first picture that God gives is says, cursed is the one who trusts in themselves, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed, whoop, let's click that is the best one, all right. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, never fails to bear fruit. So two pictures. The first one that God speaks about is describing the people at the time. And he uses this Hebrew word, ara. I'm sure he can say it differently, but I'm going to go with "arah." And "arah" is a bush that's found in the driest parts of the desert. Now, it, this bush grabs the eye immediately because it's just bleak, 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 bleak. Then this, this vibrant, lush bush. It's like it, it just it stands out really quickly. And it's got these fruit that grow on it, and they grow about the size of a cricket ball, and man, they are really bright green when they start to ripen. So, this tree, when you see it, you just think immediately, this is chock a block full of life. When you pick the fruit off an Arar bush, though, it's really light. Like you expect it to have substance, and it's almost like, oh, this thing <laughs> doesn't weigh much at all. When you crack it open, it's this really satisfying, like opening a bottle of lemonade. Beautiful sound, but then it's completely empty on the inside. Completely empty. It's like a vegan barbecue. <laughs> it's, it's all, all sizzle, no steak. It's <laughs> and then once you've cracked, once you've cracked this fruit, not only is it substanceless, but this white milky substance begins to leak from its husk, and if it comes onto your skin it will cause damage. And if you ingest it, you can potentially die. It causes damage to anyone that comes near it. So a ra looks amazing on the surface. like It will grab the eye. It is stunning in a desert. But when we crack beneath the surface of it, at the very best, it's a letdown. And at the worst, it hurts. It hurts the people who get close to it. So God was speaking to the people in Jeremiah's day. And see, these people still went to the temple. They ditched God, but they were still coming to the temple, still doing all the right religious stuff, ticking every box we would want to see. But they didn't give God their heart. And over time, their heart not only stopped going towards God, but then it stopped showing care to the people around them. And instead, they became known. And God, he rips into them for this in Jeremiah, for pushing people to the edges of society, particularly the vulnerable. God's people became known at the time for who they hurt rather than who they love. And we know it's really easy for us to do the same. Like this isn't, this isn't horrible humans. This is just a human condition. You know, We know that when we personally stop drawing our strength and our life from God and instead rush into that busyness, rush into that self-preservation where it's like, what's going to work for me? What's going to work for me? What's going to work for me? It's really easy to get into these rhythms where we stop drawing from God. And then our hearts become distracted and a bit cold and a bit hardened towards the people around us, particularly those who are vulnerable or on the edges of our society. We know that because we see it and we feel it in ourselves. There will be particular groups where we're just like, I don't know if I've got anything to give them. You know, like in our community, we have a lot of people who need compassion the most. If we're looking at people who are unemployed or experiencing chronic illness or trauma, you know, we've got people in our community who are grieving, people who are LGBT or neurodivergent. We've got groups of teenagers that we walk past. We've got people from cultures and experiences different to ours and our hearts at times can harden. When we drift from God, we gradually become a We start to push away those who already feel like they're on the edges of our community. And God says how we speak about and how we treat these people is one of the clearest indicators of the substance and depth of our connection with Him. And he says that not just to be like sticking the needle. He says it the opposite way too. He's like, the clearest indicator of your connection with me is also the next part of the chapter. He gives us this other picture where he says, when you're in deep restored relationship with me and you trust and follow my ways, he says, well, then you become like the Palestinian acacia tree. This tree, often the way it grows, it kind of has a flat top. And it's kind of shaped like an umbrella, not for singing in the rain though. It's a desert, so it's kind of singing in the singing in the drought. But it's initially, if you're walking through the desert and if you saw this and you saw the arah bush, the eye would go the arah. It's way more impressive. But this tree, this this tree, while it doesn't have the initial kind of appeal, is an incredible piece of the desert. Now, this tree, acacia tree, takes about, it takes a long time to grow. So it's not a quick grower. The Iraq will grow very quickly. Whereas the Palestinian acacia tree takes about three generations to grow. And you find these trees in the parts of the desert where there's a canyon, or as we can see here, there's a bit of a rock wall. And when the rain comes, it channels down and it pulls in a particular location. The water goes underground and the roots are able to access it. So, the Palestinian acacia tree knows exactly where it's going to find its source of life. This tree is known for a lot of things. One of the best ones is how good it is at providing shade. So, its leaves absorb the moisture, its leaves have this, such a high salt content that it absorbs the moisture from, a, from the air and holds it. And so, its temperature is usually at least 10 degrees cooler than any other tree around it. It is phenomenal at providing shade. The wood of this tree is incredibly strong. So not only will you find rest underneath the tree, but if you need, you can build a durable house and community with its wood. The wood, if you want a campfire, burns hotter and longer than any wood you'll find within hundreds of kilometres of that region. So it provides more comfort and sustainability. These tiny pods grow on its branches. So, again, they're not the impressive cricket ball size, but they're tiny. But when you pick them and you give them to livestock, it's the most nutritious thing that they can eat in that area. And the tree sap, if you crack the tree, the sap is medicinal. So, it is used in those areas for healing and for relief and for healing of deep wounds. It is what, probably the most healing thing in that region. So it's not really any wonder that the local people call these trees the gift of the desert. It's pretty cool. And that's what God is calling us to continue being. So God's showing us in Jeremiah that when our relationship with him is nurtured and has deep roots, the benefits of life will be experienced by us, but not just us. It branches out to everyone around, particularly to those who currently find themselves outside of our shade. We're blessed to be a blessing to others, for, the inter- for interactions with us to feel like the relief of shade on a scorching day. This is what God is calling us to continue becoming. Gifts of the desert bring God's wisdom and compassion to their workplaces and community groups. They stand alongside and provide deep comfort to anyone who's hurting. They allow God to continue softening their hearts so that they generously share the love of Jesus, that they bring a sense of healing to those who were previously beyond the shade. Our God in the book of Jeremiah is calling us into deeper relationship with him because when we put our trust in him, When we deepen our experience with him, we end up experiencing more of life to its fullest. And then we branch out to all people in our community, particularly those who we currently push beyond. We see the tree just grow and grow until all people experience something of Jesus. Our community that we live in is incredibly hungry for restored community. That's our God. They're hungry for what only he can bring. Our community is hungry for shade in scorching times, for the sense of who will show us a love and a compassion that other parts of the community will not. Only Jesus and his people bring that. God is calling us to bring our town what only he can do and that only he can do through us. So as we wrap all this up today, it's a big book. We've just stepped into bits of it. But it's a book about a God who wants to restore. A God who is actively restoring and will not stop until it fully happens. And then we will live with him in full restoration. And this is a God who doesn't just want that for us individually and us as a church, even though that's a pretty cool place to start. He's saying continue growing and being the people who spread the shade to all. So that we become known in all parts of our community. We are the people who love. So I just want to take 1 minute as we wrap up the sermon tonight or today. Just sitting where we are and just listening and feeling to what God is saying to each of us. There may be something where God's going we have a good relationship and I want it deeper with you. Feel that. Listen to what God's desire for you is. And God may be putting on our hearts a particular person or a particular group that we have pushed beyond our shade beyond the limits of our love and compassion. Let's hear what God's saying about them and how he wants us to show his reconciliation and care to that people, to that person too. Let's just take a minute in silence, sitting where we are, to hear and to feel what God's saying to us. And after that, I'll pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for being the God of reconciliation. That you are deeply committed to restoring all relationship. God, you started it in the Old Testament. You're doing it in Jeremiah. You've done it through Jesus and you continue doing it. Thank you for that. It's so good. God, we know the more and more that we tap into you, that we listen to you, draw deeply from you, the more we experience life to its fullest. God, please help us this week as individuals and as a church to encourage each other. Let's draw from where we get our life from. That's you. And God, help us to continue growing. We are a really good tree here. We're also a really good tree that has potential to grow. God, help us to grow until every single person in our town knows how good you are and how much you love them. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.